Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss new views and general happenings in Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Habib, lecturer in international relations at La Trobe University. Today, we continue our look at Asia and the environment, this time by examining the relationship between the authoritarian state and landscape in a country that has little concern of environmental impact. North Korea has a regular presence in the news of late, but there's a lot more to the country than divisive political personalities, nuclear weapons and the Winter Olympics. My guest is Dr. Robert Winstanley Chesters, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and author of the book Environmental Politics and Ideology in North Korea. He's one of the few people studying the environment of North Korea, where the survival of the landscape is only guaranteed as a function of the state. Nuclear politics at the moment across the Pacific and in relation to North Korea has been so hot a topic that it has virtually driven out all other aspects of North Korean studies. Not just in terms of North Korea's nuclear capacity, but uh, North Korea's military capacity and its security threat, people's understanding of it as a security threat, and its sort of status as a general like aberration in world politics. I also think the concern about nuclear politics is a sign of the current theatre and drama of politics across the world, but it's also a sign of where the money is in Korean studies. It's a real sign of the reductiveness of our media and academic culture that that sort of research, people aren't interested in it anymore and universities and government institutions are not interested in doing it anymore. Especially because if you think about the fact that a nuclear exchange involving North Korea would be of an environmental crisis, unlike many other environmental crises in the world at the moment. The environmental destruction and damage created by that would be extraordinary. I mean, that isn't my reason for researching North Korean environmental policy. I think that we make very bad policy about North Korea. And I think some understanding of the institutional functionality and interests of North Korea would help make better policy. And it's a shame that that doesn't happen. I also think that some of the few instances in which North Korea has really engaged with external international partners and uh, treaties and organizations has been on environmental matters. So North Korea is very concerned about conservation, primarily because it wants resources to exist in the future, because it needs them to, and it needs them to be cheap. So conservation is very important. It also plays a role in the lubrication of North Korea's relationship with the wider world and its status in international organizations. So environmental politics is really important to North Korea. Issues relating to forestry management, bird life, the sea, biodiversity, climate change have been uh, some of the things that North Korea has really tried to make a, a coherent engagement with within the international context. So I think the approach of North Korea to the environment tells us a great deal about North Korean priorities and the way that it would like to be seen in the world community. And it also tells us a lot about the functionality of certain institutions in North Korea and the processes of government decision making. Well, let's put environmental analysis back into the mix. In your 2014 book, Environment, Politics and Ideology in North Korea, you explored North Korea's environmental history in a great deal of detail. And it's a great book. I'm fortunate to read it. What were your key observations from this work? 
Well, well I suppose North Korea has uh, always been interested in environmental matters and that environmental concerns are deeply connected with its uh, developmental history. This is not to say that North Korea has ever been particularly successful at uh, maintaining environmental equilibrium in its own territory, but it's always a matter of concern. And that concern focuses around the utility of natural resources for North Korean development. So it is important to have a lot of trees if you're going to use a lot of wood. It's important to have a lot of fish if you need to catch a lot of fish. North Korea has always been a very low input, high output sort of developmental agenda. Even when it was uh, gaining Soviet support and uh, support from other places in the communist world in, before 1992, always required resources to be as cheap as possible. Doubly true after 1992. It's very important to be able to make use of the resource that you have and that you don't have to pay someone else for. Therefore, it's important to have a lot of trees, to have good soil, or to have a high population of fish. Obviously, in North Korea's case, North Korea went down a chemicalized process of agriculture. So North Korea's uh, relationship with soil is one of acute crisis. So, you know, after 1992, with the collapse of the world communist economy and the inability of North Korea to buy fertilizer on the world market, North Korea was left with a soil that was essentially dead. And so North Korea has had to develop a lot of organic agriculture to put nutrients back into the soil to enable some agricultural production to continue. Also, interestingly, North Korean relationships with the environment, with development, tells you a lot about a particular aspect of North Korean politics, which I don't think is particularly focused on, and that is its capacity for critique. So if you spend a lot of time, like I did, unfortunately for me, reading the 47 volumes of Kim Il-sung's works in which... Kim Il-sung recounts all of the apparently amazing things he did, and which sort of is the historiography of North Korea. He doesn't just focus on military aspects or the success of the guerrilla campaigns or anything like that in the 1930s. He also focuses very specifically on developmental and environmental projects, such as forests, agriculture, that sort of thing. And I think what's really astonishing if you actually sit back and read those things is the way that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, to a lesser extent, every couple of years, constantly sort of give very detailed and sort of direction about what to do on particular environmental matters, and nobody ever follows him. So nobody ever actually does what they're supposed to. So two or three years later, Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il will come back to the place where he gave the instruction and Nothing will have happened. The local party committee will have failed on every account. Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il will criticise the environmental organisations of that particular area and give them some new instructions. So this constant level of critique suggests that, you know, nothing good environmentally ever happened in North Korea. I'm not quite sure what the truth of that is, but it's an extraordinary sense of internal critique within its own developmental and environmental sectors. And it's something that really people don't pick up on. And I think that's something you don't get in other autocratic regimes. So if you think about the works of Stalin, Enver Hoxha in Albania, or like Eric Honecker in East Germany, all of whom published voluminous amounts of work and appeared to know absolutely everything about development in their particular national sense, their books and their texts aren't replete with criticisms of their own developmental institutions. And so I think that's something very interesting. And that's one of the 
primary lessons for anyone reading the environmental history of North Korea is the internal critique and the interesting sort of flexibility of that in relation to uh, its institutions. One of the first treatises that was published by Kim Jong-un in his official publications was a statement on land management back in 2012. How has thoughts on land management under Kim Jong-un evolved from uh, his predecessors? Well, I mean, one thing to also note and in relation to what I just said is that often the things that the three Kims say about various aspects of development are actually the same things. Kim Jong-un's statement on land administration, which is pretty extraordinary from a 29-year-old man who was supposedly interested in basketball at the time, Kim Jong-un's statement is fairly similar to a statement that his grandfather might have made. If I remember it rightly, he has more focus on organic agriculture than his father might, uh, less chemicalized, less industrial agricultural processes. I think it's interesting to suggest that it is important for Kim Jong-un as the North Korean leader to express a capability and an interest, even though he may only be 29 at the time. I think he's now 31 or 32. It is important for North Korean governmentality that he should express an interest in the environment and a capability when it comes to land management, which equates and connects to the historical memory of his grandfather, who also was very concerned about land management for environmental themes. You know, North Korea is actually quite a small country. There's always been a utopian element, obviously, to North Korea that's building a socialist revolution or the socialist revolution has already happened. But what would be the best thing about a socialist revolution would be to actually create actual socialist landscape. One of the ways North Korea did that in the early years was to transform and reconfigure an agricultural and developmental landscape left over from the Japanese colonial period into a more authentically Korean landscape, a less capitalist landscape, a socialist landscape. So by engaging with land management and environmental matters, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-un are building a authentically North Korean environmental space. That authenticity and that sort of desire to create a new terrain, a new revolutionary terrain, if you like, echoes down into all sorts of environmental themes in North Korea's uh, history. Well, these practices demonstrate an extreme anthropocentric interpretation of the human relationship with the natural environment. How have you seen this anthropocentrism manifest in North Korea's development practice since that time? How has it evolved? Well, I'm not entirely sure it's ever really evolved that much. I think sometimes people overplay the content of North Korean ideology because North Korean ideology has very few real defining points because the most important thing about it is its flexibility to be whatever you need it to be at any point in time. If you need juche to be agriculture, which is entirely chemicalized, great. If you need juche to be organic agriculture, also great. If you need juche to be surviving a famine, fantastic. You know, so it can be all of these things. One of the few principles, and there are probably four or five principles about juche, is the notion of man being the master of all things. So a sort of very positivistic, optimistic approach to development. That essentially means that North Korea can achieve anything, even with its small agricultural space. And I noticed this. I mean, people always talk about particular moments when North Korean institutions met external institutions after 1992 for the first time. 
and how they were demonstrative of like a particularly North Korean way of thinking. When the FAO explained marine conservation to North Korea's Ministry of Fisheries, North Korea's fisheries minister, apparently on learning the theory about fishing conservation as post-maximum sustainable yield, it's like, oh, brilliant. Conservation of fish. That means that we have some species of fish which are small in population and useless and we could replace those with lots of fish that could be useful and appropriate to fit the needs of a revolutionary man. And so I'm not really sure that it's ever evolved. I mean, it's interesting the way that conservation has connected with developmental policy. We don't need to conserve them for the sake of interesting biodiversity or for the species' sake. They just need to be there for us. You've done work on the role of topography in North Korean political narratives, and this is fascinating work. In particular, how the culturally significant Pektusan Changbashan mountain volcanic lake is mobilised as a legitimating symbol in the personality cult surrounding the Kim family. Uh, can you tell us more about the significance of topography in North Korea's official narratives? The Changbashan Pektusan mountain example is fascinating because obviously Pektusan is important on both sides of the DMZ. And that's because Pektusan in particular connects to a much older tradition in Korean culture, deriving from a notion of Korean geomancy, which is called the Pektutegan, the notion that Korea is connected by a chain of mountains along which particular key energy, sacred energy flows. Obviously, North Korea is an atheist state, but it doesn't forget that folk memory and the vitality of past Korean geomancy. So it's really important for Pektusan to still be important in North Korea. And it's super vital for Kim Jong-il to have been born in the cabin, which he wasn't probably, and for Kim Il-sung to have fought in the guerrilla campaigns with his first wife, Kim Jong-suk, around the mountain, which sort of happened sometimes. These sort of guerrilla struggle narrative of the 1930s is reprojected onto Pektusan for this important sort of connection to past energy from Korean culture. But there are very specific elements in the landscape which are vital to North Korean history. So if you read the narratives of the fights and the various battles with Kim Il-sung and the guerrilla band, you will see that particular elements of topography, particular rocks and particular trees, become like supporting actors in the struggle, almost as if natural features and elements of that topography are in league with the communist guerrillas, in league with their sense of Korean nationalism. And children and civil servants from Pyongyang will travel to Pektusan to see particular rocks and particular trees and do particular tours of topographic features in order to connect with some of the authority and energy of the past. And my favourite ever example derives from a particular moment in 1936. It was the first time that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-suk, his first wife and the mother of Kim Jong-il's relationship, was acknowledged publicly by the text. So apparently Kim Jong-suk and a small band of female gorillas are having a picnic by Lake Sanjion, just south of the mountain. Who happens to arrive over the other side of the lake but Kim Il-sung and his band of gorillas? 
Both guerrilla groups meet and they decide to have a joint picnic. And it's it's a really nice day. Everybody's having sort of a little bit of fun in the in between harassing the Japanese, uh, apparently. One of the female guerrillas says, wouldn't it be great to get a photograph of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-suk together? Because, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, everybody knows, you know, there's a relationship going on, you know? Kim Jong-suk, as always, is extremely embarrassed, but Kim Il-sung says it's a great idea, you know? And in the text, it says that Kim Jong-suk remembered that photograph as if it was her wedding photograph. The photograph has three birch trees behind them. So those three birch trees are now featured in all of the tour group studies around that site. Every year on the day of that supposed meeting and that photograph, they have a ceremony in front of the three birch trees. Kim Jong-il came out of this relationship and, you know, North Korea is born at this spot, really. And so these three birch trees, these three living things, which the birch trees now were supposed to be the same birch trees, but anyway, you know, but those three birch trees are ciphers for all of the people who were there on that day. Witnesses. They Instead of human witnesses, they are living, non-sentient witnesses. And so that is really my favourite example of a natural piece of topography featuring in, in North Korean politics and history. Your current work explores fishing, conservation and community in North Korea. And I'm particularly intrigued by the way you're moving beyond viewing fishing as just the commodified exploitation of sea creatures as inanimate resources, to see marine fauna as active agents themselves in this interplay between human coastal communities, political economy of the regions, and marine ecosystems. So can you say a bit more about this? Well, it's actually really interesting how materials from North Korea really concern us. So primarily, the world is concerned with North Korean fissile materials, rare earth elements and that sort of thing. So these materials are vital in geopolitics at the moment. But it's really interesting because in recent history in North Korea, we're really concerned about other North Korean materials too. So if we think about wheat or rice or meat, energy, protons, electrons in the North Korean context, we're really concerned about those in their absence. So in the early 1990s, there was a terrible famine period caused by the inability of North Koreans to use uh, foreign capital anymore, or any capital, to buy food and the collapse of their agricultural system. So agricultural products became really active agents by their absence in North Korean society. Their absence created a famine, nearly the collapse of North Korea. The lack of energy, the lack of electricity available to North Korea's grid, and that lack of energy as an active power has itself an active agency in geopolitics. The lack of energy suggests North Korea is a dark place, undeveloped, dark and evil. So in a sense, there are players, we've seen the players by their absence, but what about the players by their presence? So thinking about fish, yeah, so I think I'm working mainly about fish as active agents, you know, in sort of North Korean politics. But you could equally think about timber, forests, disease, energy, the rare earth metals in the North, which could be worth a million, 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 you know, trillions of dollars if they actually exist, you know what I mean, are also active agents in the present. So North Korea's seafood exports have become a sanctioned trade good in UNSC Resolution 2371. 
So what's the significance of this particular inclusion in the sanctions regime, given what you've just been saying? Yes, well, I mean, this is a classic example in which um, something we imagine is this sort of inanimate, neutral element of, like, the world's ecosystem becomes a really active player in world politics and geopolitics. So fish become talked about in the United Nations Security Council. They become a weapon so the absence of fish and the absence of the capability to financialize fish resource become weaponized in the United States and other allied nations sort of aggressive approach to North Korea. So, so Nikki Haley is suddenly interested in North Korean fish. You know, she probably doesn't know the species, but North Korean fish are active in the American mind just as rare earth metals or radioactive materials are active in the, the American mind. The fish as a resource are hugely important to national development, and we've seen that even even their absence has created political chaos in various places. It's the collapse of the Pacific salmon and the collapse of the cod stocks off the Grand Banks and the harrowing fisheries disappearing in the early 20th century in the, in the UK. So the presence or absence of fish is vitally important for national development. For North Korea, the presence or absence of fish is vital for its capacity to feed what's left of its capacity to to sort of support its national sensibility, and especially the army. You know, most people know that by this point, North Korea's public distribution system doesn't work, doesn't exist. So in the past, North Korea supplied people with rations according to their need, blah, 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 and according to also their role in society. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. But it does try to supply, or it tries to make sure that the army is supplied, because the one functional institution in North Korea, apart from the central government and the Workers' Party of Korea, is the army, and sometimes it's difficult to tell. So it's important that the army is fed, and it's also important that the army has resource. And so one of the ways that the the army has done that is by co-opting different developmental sectors. Not just because um, that's what happens, but also because it's good at it. In the past, and this is part of my research, North Korea's fishing industry was organized through a cooperative structure. So North Korea got expert fishermen from different places around the coast, gathered together in fishing cooperatives, and used fishing cooperatives of, of civilians to fish and extract fish from the sea. Now, in the last 10 to 20 years, North Korea has built a network of fishery stations around the coast of the country that are run entirely by the army. And the army not only does all the fishing to supposedly supply the central stock of food in North Korea, but also as a sort of financial resource to sell. These current sanctions aim to impact not only North Korea's government's capacity to financialize their resources, but also as another way of restricting their army's capability and functionality. You know, whether this is actually achievable to restrict entirely North Korea's fishing capacity is another matter. For a start, the whole thing is predicated on North Korean fish actually arriving at ports and not being bulk loaded between ships in the middle of the sea. But, you know, that's another story. Right, you and I have been corresponding for many years on climate change vulnerability in the DPRK uh, and more broadly in Northeast Asia. From your research, what are the impacts of climate-related environmental change on communities in North Korea? Well, my particular focus has been um, fishing cooperative called Shindo, which is on an island in the estuary mouth of the Aunok Yalu River. And the island is actually reclaimed from the sea. And one thing that my research in my doctorate told me was that 
North Korea has a real focus on reclaiming land from the sea because what's even more revolutionary than reconfiguring a landscape to become a socialist landscape, but actually creating a whole new landscape that could be socialist revolutionary landscape. But the one thing that North Korea is not actually very good at is maintaining that reclaimed land or finishing that reclaimed land. So reclamation projects tend to run out halfway through the process. They build the dikes and then they don't actually manage the landscape. So you get quite wet landscape, not very well developed land. This is pretty much what happened in the Shindo situation, that this island was reclaimed from the sea quite badly. Unfortunately for them, due to climate change, weather patterns around the mouth of the Yellow River have meant that you get a lot more storms blowing into the estuary and a lot more tidal surges. So unfortunately for this cooperative, they are beset by sea level rise and essentially the sinking and the degradation and erosion of their own land. As climate change develops, this will be a fundamentally difficult challenge for North Korea to solve or to deal with, especially on the West Coast, you know, where the land is much lower. I mean, North Korea is not very resilient when it comes to climate change. I think we both know that. And the resilience uh, and the ability to deal with the change in climate, the change in weather and sea level rise will be an extraordinary challenge to the North Korea of the 20 to, th or 20 to 30 years hence, if it still exists. But I mean... That's why North Korea is one of the reasons why North Korea is so concerned to connect with the UNFCC process and was, you know, involved in the Paris Agreement summits and that sort of things. Not saying that North Korea is the greatest participant in all of those summits, but it's there because it recognizes the global challenge of climate change. But it also <laughs> is very useful in political terms because climate change is the Americans fault. It's the non-socialist, non-revolutionary world's fault. Yeah, it's the fault of capitalists and it's the fault of capitalist industry. One of those other things in the web of politics and the web of uh, ideology that North Korea can play in its combat of its enemies, I suppose. But it's also concretely a real issue for North Korea. You know, all nations are challenged by climate change and sort of environmental crisis. But, uh, you know, North Korea is one of the countries that has the least capacity to deal with it. That was Dr. Robert Winstanley Chesters, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. And you've been listening to Asia Rising. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And please leave a review. You can follow myself and Robert on Twitter, Robert is at rwinstanleyc, and I'm at Dr. Benjamin Habib. I'm Ben Habib, and thanks for listening. <laughs>